Hi everyone, welcome to a brand new episode of the Genre Equality Podcast on the Genre Equality channel. I'm Hitzer. I'm Isa. And in episode 45, we got lots to talk about, including a couple of big blockbusters. Mm. Uh, the big one though is James Gunn's <laughs> reboot slash sequel of the Suicide Squad called V Suicide Squad. Uh, we'll be talking about the latest season of Rick and Morty, the latest seasons of Legends of Tomorrow, Tuka and Birdie. Uh, including other films like uh, the indie art house, Arthurian legend, The Green Knights, uh, big ones like Free Guy, um, Jungle Cruise, M. Night Shyamalan's new film, Old, uh, and lots and lots more. Meanwhile, Isa will be tackling the anime corner once mm-hmm. again, yep. bringing you um, some returning anime, some ongoing anime, but we'll be particularly highlighting Lots of good new anime, uh, highlighted by Sunny Boy, I think you were saying, right? Yeah, Sunny Boy. Yeah, uh, also, I saw will be covering The Witcher prequel? Sidequel? Uh, OVA? Pre- prequel. I think prequel is, is, is pretty sound. Yeah, because. Prequel, yeah. We'll uh, n- hmm? Definitely. It's now out on uh, Netflix just the previous week. It's called Nightmare of the Wolf. Uh, I saw, of course, you know, he's a big The Witcher fan, so I'm letting him tackle that right idea on the show. Yeah. Uh, but let's begin with the big one. Uh, James Gunn's um, Suicide Squad. Um, it isn't so much a reboot or a sequel of 2016's Suicide Squad as it is kind of a complete do-over. Um, and this time, I think, or especially with relative to the first one, uh-huh. this is a much bigger success. Um, yeah. In fact, you know, this is kind of the, the irreverent ultra-violent romp featuring F-less villains, played by A-less actors, mm-hmm. uh, is, I think, DC's best film in a good long while. Yeah. Um, the story is essentially The Dirty Dozen, but with supervillains. Uh, <laughs> and it's, it's one hell of a great time. You know? um, once again, if you don't know, the plot features a group of incarcerated supercriminals, including Bloodsport, Peacemaker, Captain Boomerang, Ratcatcher 2, uh, Savant, King Shark, Black Guard, Javelin, Harley Quinn, and much more. Um, in exchange for lesser sentences, they're sent on a genuinely lethal Black, so- Black Ops mission in the nation of Koto Maltese uh, in order to counteract a-, a coup that's happening there, uh, which allows this thoroughly R-rated movie to finally live up to its name <laughs> in gruesome fashion. Yep. Um, unlike this first movie, it's made abundantly clear that no one in its colorful cast is safe. Uh, and when these characters are killed off, it's not pretty, um, as director James Gunn kind of taps into his old gory days as a gross-out B-movie provocateur. Um, <laughs> characters don't just go down, they get sliced and diced, incinerated, exploded, with blood and guts galore. Um, sometimes these over-the-top de- deaths are kind of done for shock value, sometimes for humor value, and sometimes they're meant to pull at our heartstrings. But they'll always inspire some kind of significant reaction, and I think that's why the film works very well. Um, the Suicide Squad allows Gunn to lean into everything that he does best, uh, you know, weaving the action and the drama and the wit and the toilet humor, which we've come to expect. But there's something a bit more here, because I think like Gunn takes a perverse and strangely emotional roller coaster ride with with a surprise around every corner. I think the the film may essentially be a superhero or supervillain warkeeper on the yeah. surface. Uh, but underneath, uh, it's a good examination of DC's bottom of the barrel baddies. Um, <laughs> even the weirdest 
uh, of the weird, like Polkadot Man and Ratcatcher 2, are shown to have unseen depths uh, worth exploring. Uh, Gun clearly has a soft spot for outcasts and misfits in various comic universes, and here um, he creates sort of a twisted yet touching tribute to DC's sad, broken supervillains. Um, what was your take on this new Suicide Squad? Oh, man. Uh, it was really fun. Really fun. Yeah. Uh, definitely the best Suicide Squad that's come out thus far. Oh, yeah. And yeah. I, I think quite easily the best thing DC has done in the movie so far. Uh, yeah. It's not a perfect movie by any measure, but it has all the things that you're looking for out of a comic book movie in spades, right? And that mm-hmm. in and of itself is, I, I think, a vast improvement from any of the other DC outings that we had in a long time. Um, it does. It lacks the polish, I guess, of anything that comes coming out of the MCU. Uh, yeah. But we we expect that. Like it's fine, right? Like you don't need that kind of polish. You don't need like a kind of like Feige directed unit uh, union of all things within a single universe. I think what Gunn has done with the franchise has really perked it up. And if they continue in this vein, kind of this like hyper violent, gory, tongue in cheek. Um, you know, with the occasional splatter of like some really deep character exploration uh, yeah. and some very, very deep cuts into, you know, just comic book canon and lore in general. I, I think like there's a lot to look forward to moving mm-hmm. forward for that. I do think that like something like Suicide Squad in just like its tone, its feel and just how well it's been doing in the box office mm-hmm. does signal the death of the Snyderverse, in my opinion. And, and you know, no offense to guys who, who love the Snyderverse and want that to come back. There might be a place for that. But I think moving forward, um, this particular outing from, from Gunn uh, and, and all the, the minor villains of the DC universe uh, signals a, a big direction change. Um, with the upcoming Flash film, of course, you know, um, confirmed to be starring Michael Keaton and, and a few other people, right? Like, yep. it's clear that um, DC has always had a, thorough, a more thorough handle on the multiverse than Marvel has, which is just starting to dip into its toes into it. Yep. Um, I don't see any reason for all these strands of the Snyderverse or the Gunverse or whatever other verse to not be able to coincide simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's not diametrically opposed for sure, right? Mm. Especially with the way that you know, DC in general over the years have dealt with their with their uh, multiverse situations and the multiple, multiple retcons that have to happen because of multiverse uh, situations. Mm-hmm. Um, if anything, uh, all the major cross multiversal crossovers have been the biggest kind of like headliner events uh, across mm-hmm. the years, right? Whether, you know... Um, it's New 52 or whether or not it's Blackest Night. I mean, like any yeah. of those uh, singularly drove sales for, for DC kind of through the roof uh, during the mm-hmm. point in time they were released. So can they do it in film? I don't see why not. Um, I don't know if... There, mm, there is a lot of work to be done when you're trying to do multiversal stuff. And where Doctor Strange is going to take it for the MCU has a very firm basis for the main timeline already, which I think makes it less confusing. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the way DC is jumping into it, it may be a bit confusing for people who aren't like, you know, hardcore DC fans and readers of the comic books and have followed through everything since the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's promising, uh, you know. And I mean, like, honestly... 
I still think Margot Robbie as as uh, Harley Quinn is still a joy to see on screen. And if mm. she continues to be around, she's going to continue to make money for for DC for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I think you know uh, f- the upcoming Flashpoint film is obviously going to be uh DC the the main DC film verse version of of uh, MCU's Loki. Mm-hmm. Um, which you know I don't think they are particularly care caring about putting such hard rules in a multiverse. They're just going to let different directors do different things. Yep. And if they want to explain it, you can just like wave your hand and say it takes place in another universe and don't care about continuity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that might be the best way for DC to go. Lah. Um, you know, it, it, they are very rough and tumble and messy as it is. And with the multiverse, it allows them an excuse to have messy continuity issues and just let them do the most fun things possible. Uh, with this Suicide Squad, I think it's kind of the epitome of that when you let a director really kind of let loose. Yeah. Don't uh, just, just you know, tell him like, you know what? You, you don't have to care about continuity. It's fine. Just do whatever you want, you know. So he creates this, you know, gritty, intense war movie that's also tongue-in-cheek. Um, I think the action is quite inspired. There's all manner of high-stakes twists and turns and betrayals and deceptions and those elements are then generously lathered with guns a vulgar belligerent you know wild sense of humor (laughs) uh which is also offered you know to the spectacular cast you know idris alba and john cena are particularly good as rival assassins bloodsport and peacemaker um sylvester stallone as king shark uh in a role kind of directly inspired by the harley quinn cartoon um is really good as well uh joe kinnaman's rick flag uh, is thankfully spared from the cheesy lines he was forced to work with in <laughs> David Ayer's movie. Uh, and is finally someone kind of worth rooting for. Um, yep. His dynamic with Margot Robbie, as you mentioned, as Harley Quinn, is the highlight of the movie. And speaking of Harley, um, the film is by far, I think, Margot Robbie's best turn as Harley Quinn. Oh, yeah. Uh, she's very on point here. Um, if there is any weak point to be found, it kind of just lies in the one-dimensional antagonists. But yeah. other than that, I felt that it was, you know, hilarious, gratuitous, you know, all those things. Like, you know, I, I liked it quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like, as far as... Is, is revealing the villain actually spoiler? Mm, there are, like, posters of, of him, uh, etc. Like, you know, James Gus has given interviews about it. So, okay. Uh, okay. You, you, you all know that, uh, in, in fact, in the in the opening scene, you know, in the, in the setup to the heist, right? Yeah. Uh, they were given a briefing by Amanda Waller and you already shown the villain, um, Starro. Yeah. So, I don't think it's a, it's a surprise. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I felt like that a, a lot could have been done with Starro. But mm. given such a big cast and, like, kind of wanting to explore... Uh, a, a bit more about with the world building or, or the plot setting in this particular case as well as like you know the recruitment montage etc etc I, I, they don't have enough time for that uh, mm-hmm. but Starro is such a fascinating kind of like villain to begin with uh, interesting take on trying to humanize him because like from my memory at least right my first introduction to Starro was um, the DC animated universes uh, one off for when Starro took over Superman. Uh, for those yeah, yeah. of you who remember, that's like old Superman with the goatee mm. uh, who, who was basically evil. It's yeah. probably the most famous Superman story. Yeah, yeah. I, I love, love, love that one shot. Uh, and, uh, you know, like that was kind of my introduction to Starro even before I kind of like dived into, you know, um, its origins and, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, but it has, a, it's, it's a pretty deep cut, right? As far as um, uh, where it stands within the DC Universe lore. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think like it got a fair treatment. It could have been more, but you know, I mean, you only got so much time. 
Um, I was speaking more to the human villains, the oh. Maltesian villains, who should have been humanized more than Starro was. Starro is obviously <laughs> more, of a, more of a side gag. Lah. But, you know, like, there's only so much you can do to humanize a starfish, which I totally understand. I'm yep. going to let it go, you know. But the human villains, I felt, were the one-dimensional antagonists, not Starro. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, one was basically just a foil for Harley to show off. And the other yep. one was like, you know, your run-of-the-mill dictator wannabe. Yeah, evil general, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but it's all just kind of played for laughs. Um, mm-hmm. and I think in in a situation in which the big baddies of the greater world have to fight these kind of like small time baddies. Yeah. Um, if you don't want to take the time to flesh them out, I'm okay with that. Like mm-hmm. it's not a big deal, especially given that this is Gunn's first outing with the franchise, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if it continues to build up over subsequent Suicide Squad films, I'm I'm good with that too. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, Suicide Squad has a very, very long um, catalog of, you know, people they fight against, of which some are extremely, extremely interesting. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'll let this one pass just because like, it was it was fun enough, right? It it I think um as far as one dimensional as they were, they served their purpose, mm-hmm. and that's all I really needed from it. Yeah, yeah, you know, um, o- overall, like leading up to your rating, you know, what are your what are your final thoughts on the Suicide Squad? Uh, um, I mean, it, it's definitely a romp. Uh, it gave me everything that I expected Gun to do. Uh, it gave me mm. everything that I'm looking from. Uh, you know, a f- a, a a franchise like Suicide Squad, you know, with with its entire history. Uh, in the comic books, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and like just uh, I don't know, giving giving Margot Robbie time to breathe as Harley mm-hmm. Quinn, uh, giving like Idris Elba like these insane lines, like this is uh, an Academy Award winner delivering mm-hmm. the most unimaginable lines that you never thought he would have with such like finesse, um, and then like yeah. squaring him up against John Cena, it's yeah. it's really quite something. I mean, I've always stood by the fact that I think like Bautista has been the um the actor a uh, wrestler turn actor to kind of look mm-hmm. out for. But Cena did a very, very good job. Like I, I got nothing to complain about that. And we'll see whether that leads into his own um series. HBO Max. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh looks good. You know, that's the one bit of continuity that there was in the Suicide Squad. Like. And overall I also felt, you know, it was this kind of vulgar, unhinged, heartfelt and very ludicrously fun film. Uh, if you if you like the energy of a Doom Patrol or a Legends of Tomorrow oh, yeah. or the Harley Quinn series, you definitely like this as well. And that's kind of the lane that uh that DC seems to seems to be more successful in mm-hmm. than the other comic companies. Um one final shout out to Viola Davis who finally oh, yeah. gets to be horrifying as Amanda Waller. Like you <laughs> never you never quite felt the coldness or the evil of uh the do anything it takes gray area of Amanda Waller until you see this Amanda Waller who's oh, yeah. just fo- foaming at the mouth and just doesn't give a fuck, you know? Uh yeah, great job on Viola Davis for that one. So um I would rate this seven out of ten. What about you? Yeah, it's a seven out of ten for me as well. Nice. Okay. So um pretty good DC outing. Uh-huh. Uh probably the, the the best DC film in the last couple of years. Um moving on from one WB uh, thing to another WB thing. Um and weirdly enough, all of them showed up in uh, Space Jam Two, which I can't believe I'm talking about again. <laughs> um, let's talk about Rick and Morty, which is back for season five. Yep. Um, and boy, uh, do I have some bummer thoughts about season five? <laughs> yeah. Now, before like the very voracious Rick and Morty fandom kind of jump on me, I would like to begin by saying 
that I think the show does deserve its legendary reputation amongst the geeks out there. Yep. I think for the majority of the previous four seasons, Dan Harmon and Justin Roiland, I think have proven to be absolutely ingenious writers, constantly delivering these audaciously creative, outrageously hilarious, you know, mind-bendingly meta episodes. At its most ambitious, it continues to deconstruct tropes and upend conventions at every turn. Mm-hmm. Like, this show is juvenile humor and deranged adventure paired with genius level mockery of every sci-fi trope known to man yeah you know um take episode two of the season for example which was an instant classic and (laughs) one of the greatest episodes that this series has ever done yeah it featured the concept of a clone war taken to the farthest extreme it can go um kind of scathingly showing you why the overused concept is so fun and so silly at the same time it was sheer brilliance or take episode 8, which was the rare Brick and Morty episode to feature supremely emotional stakes as it parodies uh, Charlie Kaufman's Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind to explore Rick's friendship with Bird Person and therefore examine Rick's flaws and Rick's selfishness through a very different, more poignant, more grounded lens. That being said, Barring the highlights, the couple of highlights in the episodes that, that, that I just mentioned, you know, yeah. they kind of come to a point when being clever for the sake of being clever starts to wear thin with most of the episodes. The kind of blase, nothing matters in sci-fi approach and nerds are stupid for thinking it does. It's kind of cool sometimes, especially when the writers are being so smart and funny and incisive mm-hmm. about what they're deconstructing. The problem is with this season, most of the episodes are so rarely smart or funny or incisive. Yeah. With the exception of episodes 2 and 8, the majority of season 5 feels lackluster and uninspired, with the writers kind of lazily relying on absurdist high-concept ideas and cheap snarkiness without Mm -hmm. putting in any effort into delivering any sort of real storytelling depth to keep me invested. I mean, conceptually... There's an episode that fuses gangster movie tropes with Voltron tropes sound fascinating. You know, <laughs> or or how about, you know, hell demons who are fueled by Jerry's cringiness or the goddamn turkey episode. Oh. Like yeah, they do kind of work on a stoner writer's kind of bantering on a in a room kind of level. But in a execution, they are very thin jokes that don't go beyond your references. Uh, do you agree with my take on season five in general? Yeah, I I think like we're not hating on Rick and Morty in any measure, but they've set a very high bar over the last four seasons, right? The first three being like absolutely spectacular. Yeah. Uh, and all of them have good episodes all throughout and then like phenomenal like standout episodes. Uh yeah. that that are memorable to this day. Um mm-hmm. what season five struggles with in general, I think, is that it's the first time we haven't gotten a, a real through line. And I'm wondering if what that's um it it has to do with the fact that they were booked for like what what was it seventy five episodes at a go, yeah right and instead of like kind of like the seasonal thing that they had from one uh, seasons one to four, uh mm-hmm. and whether or not it, it season five feels like they're running out of ideas, essentially, yeah. um with the exception of the the two episodes that we've talked about, um. Mm-hmm. And and I think um, just looking at the titles, or if you guys have already seen it, you will see that you know um, the eight out of the ten episodes for this particular season are all uh, parodies or based upon like ideas of of um, very popular movies, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you got your references to Evangelion, your um, to to Eternal Sunshine, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. Uh, and that feels 
very lazy, right? I feel like I don't know if this is because this is meant to be a filler season and they're, they're saving up some of the true lines that they've established in seasons one to four. Um, you know, like Evil Morty, for example, or the Citadels of Rick, for example, right? Mm-hmm. To kind of like pull through later on. Uh, mm. I did read this comment that says like, well, basically from like episode two onwards, what we are doing is that we are following, um, we are following the the duplicates. We're following the clones, essentially. Yep. You know, on all their like various like non, um, their non like crucial uh side events, mm. uh, which which I can subscribe to, but like that still doesn't. You know, it's the case of like anime filler season, really. Mm. It is what it, it really feels like. Like nothing here feels of great consequence with the yes. exception of episode 8 because it's the first time you get any sort of reference to what has happened before. It gives you a peek into the past and has consequences for the future. Yeah. Uh, and that like, you know, that, that was the only thing that really, really hit. Uh, as interested as I am, at the time of recording, we've still got two more episodes that are going to come up. Uh, episodes 9 and 10. Mm-hmm. I was just telling him that like I'm really looking forward to the Samurai Jack episode, uh, just to see what they do with it, right? If they if they make the art take the art style for a bit, like all of that, I think just on a surface aesthetic fan level, I would be happy. Mm-hmm. Um, but like one episode with consequence and great storytelling, and one episode with great concept uh, and satire does not a season make. Yep. Yeah. Uh, that that's kind of like where I am with with season five. You know, still it, in the green in the grand scheme of things, like the franchise is solid. Uh, yeah. It's just that season five isn't. You know, that there's a bar that's been set, and season five doesn't meet that bar. Ha, uh, yeah, definitely agree. Definitely agree. I think worst of all for most of the episodes, barring the two I mentioned, I think I was neither laughing nor being intellectually simulated. A lot of the joke writing seems to have devolved into a later era Simpsons oh, or yeah. Family Guy kind of like, oh, you get this reference, don't you? A reference is not a joke. Yep. Um, I think in the end, Rick and Morty is is it so entertaining? Yeah, it is. You know, I never feel like I wasted my time watching a Rick and Morty episode. I can be disappointed because of the high bar it has. Yeah. But I think you know, at its best, it's still clever and fresh and novel. Uh, but at its at its worst, it's not as clever and fresh as novel as it once was. Um, so I think overall, I'll probably give the season a six out of ten. What about you? Yeah, it's a. <sighs> Yeah, it's a 6 out of 10 for me. Uh, I was tempted to give it a 5.5 when I was halfway through the season. Yeah. Uh, you know, but episode 8 really saved it for me. Not only because Eternal Sunshine is one of my favorite shows and the fact that, again, right, finally some storytelling, finally some true line with consequence. Uh, yeah. You know, so I don't think that the other two episodes are going to add much to that score, very honestly, and unfortunately as well. Yeah, so it's a 6 mm-hmm. for me as well. Definitely. Uh, yeah, so I mean, a little disappointed of Rick and Morty. By no means is it bad. It's just not as good as it once was. Mm-hmm. Um, now I'm going to dive into the first portion of Quick Hits uh, to talk about four titles. Uh, first of which is one that is kind of close to my heart. It is Tuka and Bertie Season 2. Um, I felt Netflix's decision to cancel Lisa Hannawalt's animated series yeah. uh, after its premiere season was disappointing. And more than a little confusing. The, the, the show was very, very good. Mm. Um, it perfectly captured, I think, uh, Millennial Ennui, um, striking this strong generational chord for those amongst us who work 70-hour weeks on a gig economy, you know, for Sat Um The show resonated with those of us, you know, who 
think about mental illness, who fear imminent uh, commitment and intimacy in the digital age. And best of all, I think, you know, it focuses on women, uh, a pair of uh, literal ladybirds, uh, <laughs> best friends, uh, whose messy lives feel like a breath of fresh air. Um, Lisa Hannawalt's show truly combined her work on Bojack Horseman with the sensibilities of a show like Broad City. Um, thankfully, though, uh, Adult Swim slash Cartoon Network has saved the show for its second season. Um, and the series continues uh, you know, to grow in my heart and, and cement itself as one of the most nuanced sitcoms exploring modern female friendship. Um, before Tuka and Bertie, I never quite thought that an animated show might dare not only to focus on millennial women, but to draw comedy from taboo issues like workplace harassment, mm-hmm. SDIs, mental illness, sobriety, sexual assault. Um, I think like women in general are underrepresented in animation, especially women of color, yeah. um, making these kinds of stories rare. Um, Hannah Walt's signature sense of you know this kind of surreal gonzo humor allows the show to continually tackle dif- tackle difficult subjects, um, you know, with a with a kind of um with a kind of barrier to it, like, You know, like you, you don't you don't it's still potent, but you you can still be it's still covered up with uh with absurdism, you know. And 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 season two expands on these themes of female friendship, anxiety, grief, and power. Um, Bertie still struggles with anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, and and but I think season two mostly and most importantly begins to tackle and unpack Tuka as well. Um, focusing on her sobriety and her romantic struggles and her insomnia. Um, most shockingly, though, this season posits that while Tuka and Bertie's friendship is, you know, kind of hashtag goals, but it can also be unhealthily codependent. Yeah. You know, um, Tuka and Bertie offer each other a safety net, you know. So they can be supportive to each other at times, but they can also prevent them from go- growing individually, you know. Mm-hmm. There's always this person that you can turn to, you know. And I think like Ellie Wong and Tiffany Haddish and, and Steven Yeun as Bertie's boyfriend Speckle, who's kind of having a hell of a year with uh, Minari <laughs> and Invincible and stuff yeah. like that. Uh, um, and, and the return of this show, uh, they remain, remain great as uh, voices of these characters. Uh, and Lisa Hannawalt continues to find goofy and silly yet poignant ways to contextualize millennial anxieties and traumas through anthropomorphic flora and fauna. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so once again, I'm giving Tukan Bati Season 2 an 8 out of 10. Solid, solid. It's good stuff. Yeah, definitely, man. Uh, next up, I'm going to be talking about a movie that's not opening in Singapore just yet, uh, but I have been able to watch a preview of it. It is opening on September the 23rd at Shaw Theatres and The Projector. It is David Lowry's reimagining of The Green Knight. Um, after being delayed for over a year due to the COVID-19 pandemic, I think A24's ambitious and visionary retelling of this Arthurian legend, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, uh, has finally arrived and I'm excited for it if you aren't aware of where it's from. It's mm-hmm. adapted from the epic 14th century Welsh poem. Um, the story follows... Uh, by the way, the poem has no recognized author. It's by Anonymous. Um, the story follows Sir Gawain, who is an untested knight of King Arthur's round table who recklessly confronts the Green Knight when he interrupts Camelot's Christmas celebrations with a proposal to play a game. Mm. The kind of emerald-skinned, ant-like creature. His challenge is this. Anyone who can strike a blow against him must then allow him to return the blow in kind one year later. Okay. Gawain decides to decapitate the Green Knight with one blow, 
only to be stunned when the knight reanimates, casually picks up his head, and then he says, yeah, see you in one year, buddy. Um, and so the year-long countdown to Gawain's doom begins. Um, it is led by career best work from Dev Patel. Um, and the unparalleled, I think, artistic sensibilities of his director, David Lowry. Um, this version of The Green Knight is hypnotically, um, a, a hypnotically mournful rumination on masculinity and temptation and heroism and religion. It's kind of this painterly vision of a medieval time that is both rooted in history and embedded in magic, but also challenges traditional expectations of chivalric stories, you know. For one thing, the headstrong nephew of King Arthur um, is very unlike what we find in literature. You know, this Sir Gawain is worried he's not destined for greatness. He desperately wants to prove to himself uh, and to prove to others that he's worthy in the eyes of Arthur and Queen Guinevere, you know, despite being the son of a witch. Um, uh, obviously, if you're un- unfamiliar, his mother is Morgan Le Fay. Um, yet, for all his pride, um, drunk Gawain's kind of drunken fallibility and, and trysts with a prostitute and his cowardice proves that he's not a pure at heart knight, you know. He doesn't meet the chivalry code mm-hmm. at, 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 at any criteria, you know, and as the daily consequences of his impulsive decision looms near, Gawain must embark upon a journey to the Green Chapel to face his fate. Um, avoiding his death is not the quest so much as how he chooses to meet his death. Along the perilous track across the countryside, Gawain must contend with ghosts and giants and thieves and and schemers, you know, including a scavenger played by Barry, uh, Barry Keoghan, uh, a mysterious young woman, um, a lord played by Joe Edgerton. Um, each step of his magic realist path is a test. Um, trials of temptation and seduction. Um, each of these steps appraise his doubts and desires to see if his convictions hold true. Um, the Quintal Central hero's journey here is not a physical one. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's literally no action in the film, uh, which some people might scoff at, but it's more of a mental, spiritual, and emotional one, um, translated in lush visual detail. Um, I can see already like com- some casual fans or some critics may point to its glacial pace and loose structure as deficits. Okay. Uh, but in my opinion, Lowry's poetic storytelling actually, upon reading the poem, matches its source. There are, there are several scenes that, you know, s- that circle back to themes, like a rhythming, like a rhythmic structure, and unfolding his story in what almost feels like cinematic stanzas that repeat and comment on each other. Um, Gawain's journey becomes this kind of spiral, feeling more and more and more like a dream, and the film gains momentum through a culminative sense of disorientation. Mm-hmm. Uh, the knights, the green knights, you know, earthy and enchanting visuals, uh, unpacked both the erotic subtext and the pagan roots of the myth while exploring themes of mortality uh, and I, I don't know what else to say, but like virtueless cloud chasing. Um, this Gawain is, you know, easily can be seen as some sort of social media influencer if you, uh, if he was alive today, you know. Um, but, you know, he's kind of grappling with his own inconsequence yeah. uh, and, and his own, you know, uh, not living up to, to what people think of him. Lah. Um, like any great work of art or literature, much of the films, I think breathtakingly abstract sequences are open to different interpretations. But what comes across clearly is the idea that the Green Knight 
is uh, the the Green Knight, not the movie, but the the actual character, yeah, the creature, is is a force of nature. It is unjudging, unmoving, and uncaring. Like how we define ourselves and choose to behave in the face of that nature is the question. Um, I think Patel is mesmerizing in his performance here because he embodies the character's uncertainty in that question in many ways. His physical presence is undoubtedly irresistible camera-wise, but his ungallant cadence isn't your dad's idea of a brooding or brave knight. You know, um, he is alarmed, astonished, and aloof, and cowardly, and everything is conveyed in his posture and physicality. Um, Gawain is more of a man quavering and at war with his own integrity. Um, the film is filmed entirely in in uh in natural light and uses very low-fi special effects. Mm-hmm. Um, and David Lowry's dreary grey deconstruction of this kind of dark fantasy is surreal and really beguilingly beautiful. Like every frame captures an image that's so striking that, like, you know, like if you pause at any moment, you'll see a scene that belongs in an art exhibition. Mm. Um, Likewise, the the unsettlingly alien score, the cinematography, the exhaustively detailed costuming and production design is all a tribute to the Green Knight's bold feat of imagination. So those seeking like a typical swords and sorcery adventure might be bored, but I think this unique evocation of the poem asks a lot more of its casual audience due to its kind of languid momentum and kind of unconventional film grammar mm-hmm. but more attentive viewers will surely i think if you pay attention be spellbound by the sumptuous symbolism and the meditative touch and search for meaning that the film is offering uh in my opinion the green knight is a nine out of ten so um a very highly rated film one of the best i've ever seen in the year uh, of the year so far mm. um you you can catch it right now on vod or if you want to support your local cinemas if you live in singapore uh, watch it at Shaw Cinemas or the projector when it opens on September the twenty third. Uh, what are your thoughts about the Green Knight? You know, you've seen the trailers and all of that. Some of our friends are very excited about it. Yeah, I'm super excited, and I'm super glad to hear a, a fantastic review. So I'm mm. more than ready to buy my ticket as soon as like it cuts out. Uh, just to kind of like see that on the big screen. Um, yeah, I mean, it sounds like it sounds like it's something that I will really enjoy. Awesome, yeah, yeah. And I now encourage you to do the same as well. Uh. You know, kind of capping off this uh, section of quick hits. Let's talk about Legends of Tomorrow. Uh, praise Bebo. Uh, Legends of Tomorrow is is still very wild and weird and funny and inventive. Probably the most inventive show and the wildest show and the most fun show of all the Arrowverse shows. You know, um, I think if Harley Quinn and Watchmen didn't exist, Legends of Tomorrow would easily be the best DC comic book show in existence. Yep. Um, as it stands, season six continues to be a gem, um, delivering episode after episode of you know fun escapism and super batshit bananas bonkers stories. And the cast is obviously very comfortable with each other, and it's their chemistry that makes this lovable band of sealess heroes so watchable. Um, at the end of last season, Sarah was abducted by aliens, uh, setting the stage for this season's space and alien themed adventures. Um, not only must the legends save Sarah. But it must also uh, capture various aliens that have been let loose across time and space, uh, which propels the episodic adventures this season. As you know, the team obviously have to capture or kill kill these aliens. You know, mm-hmm. so they travel to various timelines. Like in one episode, they travel to twenty forty five to catch an alien uh, that has entered a futuristic singing competition. Yeah. Um, 
uh, and in order to keep him from winning the com- the singing competition and altering the timeline, they decide not to kill him, but to enter the competition themselves. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, the climax the climax of the of that episode is like Zari and the alien making it to the finals and competing with original pop songs that they've wrote. You know, it's this is that kind of show. Um, there, there's a fully animated Disney musical themed episode. Yeah. Um, Rory gets pregnant th- this season when an alien lays, lays eggs in him. Um, a lot of cool, insane shit happens per usual. Um, although, like on a slight downside, like in terms of consistency, season six is probably not as strong as the previous four seasons. Um, with some episodes feeling feeling more filler than others. Uh, but when the story is lagging, I think the show always falls back on the super endearing group dynamics, which is why I'm still giving Legends of Tomorrow season six a seven out of ten. Ooh. Uh, yeah, I, I, I haven't caught up yet, so like it looks like there's a fair bit to dive into. Mm, yeah, it's probably the weaker season next to season one, but okay. by no means is it a weak season. Okay, 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 cool. And finally, for this round of quick hits, I'm going to be talking about Free Guy. Um, Free Guy is a is a movie starring Ryan Reynolds. Mm-hmm. Uh, he plays a friendly bank teller who discovers that he's actually an NPC background player in an open world video game. Um, so he's unsatisfied with the reputation of his daily routine. He chooses to break free of his programming, quits his job, and decides to play as a hero in Free City. Um, v- this earns the attention of a pair of programmers in the real world who, who think that he might be the key to unlocking the game's most closely guarded secrets. Um, combining a clever concept alongside you know, sweet, self-aware humor and a charming cast, you know, as I mentioned, uh, Ryan Reynolds is there, Killing Eve's Judy Comer is there. Um, Free Guy is, a re- is really frivolous fun at the end of the day. Um, is it particularly original? Uh, I mean, not really. It's kind yeah. of a it's kind of a modern day Racket Ralph meets Ready Player One meets The Truman Show, uh, with Ryan Reynolds acting as Ryan Reynolds once again. He doesn't really have any other character to play. You know, is the is the usual um, you know cracking wise wing wing nudge nudge meta jokes kind of Ryan Reynolds. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, it does also suffer from like this kind of like Deadpool two syndrome where the jokes aren't actually jokes so much as random references. Um, all in all, though, I think it's really inoffensive fun. It's upbeat, it's wholesome, it's digestible. A really inoffensive popcorn blockbuster, so I'm giving this a 6 out of 10. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, and now we're diving in into Isa's turn. Yeah. Uh, he's going to be talking about Anime Corner. You're going to begin begin with uh, returning and, and returning anime series, right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm just going to do like a quick uh, kind of PSA. Uh, yep. For everyone who has been listening to the rest of our Anime Corners, just want to let you guys know that uh, To Your Eternity has just wrapped up with episode 20. Uh, mm. If you haven't caught up or you have been um, putting it off because you would like to binge everything at one go, which is uh, it's a tall order, we will warn you, uh, to mm. binge the whole all 20 episodes at one go, it is finally complete. And um, yeah, it's available for you to stream at, you know, your Crunchyroll and etc, etc, wherever you want to find your anime. Uh, yep. Tokyo Revengers, likewise, has also just wrapped up. Uh, it's 24 series episode. Uh, it was one of our honorable mentions from last season. Um, yeah. And I mean, like, honestly, in any other season, this would have been one of my top five, but last season was just so stacked. Uh, so you can you. go ahead and, and um, catch up on those. Uh, this season, for this summer season, which traditionally has been the more, uh, the more like summer blockbusters, right? Summer season usually is the one with the really big hitters and all of that. We do mm-hmm. have some returning anime that have been... Uh, very enjoyable and some fan favorites as well, of which okay. um, 
Uh, our favorite slime is back. So Slime Dasaken season uh, second season part two uh, has started and it's continuing and we continue to follow um, continue to follow our favorite slime as well as uh, the denizens of the Jura Tempest um, nation as they kind of like um, you know go through life trying to navigate this place where where you have sentient monsters who are banding together to create their own country. Yeah. Um, it has gotten ridiculous in the best okay. possible way. I fucking love this show. Uh, oh. Just because the way that they scale power is so, so satisfying. It's so ridiculous uh. and so satisfying and so OP in so many ways that, you know, it's just thoroughly enjoyable in a kind of like no-brainer way. Uh, I, I love it. Uh, so that's back. If you guys are big fans, just letting you know that uh, the part two of the second season is out. Also, season two of Miss Kobayashi's Dragon Maid, which is immensely popular in Japan and in many other parts of the world. I don't know if I've ever covered this on an anime corner necessarily, uh, but it is one of my guilty pleasures on the side. Um, season two just gives you even more hijinks than season one, uh, with some deepening relationships between the two main characters and a few more like new side characters as well. Um, if you're a big fan of that, please go ahead and check that out as well. Okay. Now, nice. uh, for the third returning anime, uh, it's Magia Record, uh, Puella Magi Magadoka Magica Side Story Season Two: The Eve of Awakening. What uh, a mouthful! Yeah. Um. So I I talked briefly about season one of this, where basically it's a Madoka Magica, um, sequel, uh, adjacent quote, whatever you want to call it, uh, mm-hmm. that is set in the Madoka Magica universe. Season yeah. 1 was a bit of a disappointment for me because they decided to go the route in which they did the whole slice of life thing within this very, very um, honoured, respected, and well-placed um, anime, right? Like uh, Buela Magi Madoka. Mm. It's one of the best anime um, of all time, right? It's easily S-tier, one of my favourite anime of all time. So I was a bit disappointed that they went with the slice of life route in Season 1. However, in Season 2... um. Yeah. I, I think they're going like you kind of back to form uh, in, in terms of like giving us all that we want in this really kind of dark exploration of the idea of, of these magical girls and where their powers come from. And because they set it up with the slice of life and getting to know these characters and, and, and well, so if you follow through with it, caring about them all that, like it, the drama further complicates and the plot thickens as we go into season two. Something that mm. I did not expect them to do because it really did feel in season one that this was just going to be a few good story with the flavor of Magica. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, season two, uh, The Eve of Awakening has surprised me on many levels. Um, produced again by Shaft, uh, you know, one of my favorite uh, production companies. Just like it, it's flashy. It's getting really interesting and it only could be done based upon a season that I didn't give much credit for. So, ah, okay. yeah, you know, it, it, it really is, um, uh, it's, a, it's a step forward and like an improvement in so many ways and very, very bold move, honestly, to have like an entire season set up. Much like we get for Western TV series, I guess. Mm, okay. But very rare in anime. Okay, okay. All right, so, uh, yeah, so that's the three kind of returning ones that I've highlighted. Now, jumping in to the new anime this particular season that I want to highlight. Yeah. Um, you may have heard me complaining over the last <laughs> few episodes of Genre and All Behold about, like, 
how spoiled we were um last season with the, with the yeah. spring season uh, definitely yeah you know with the this big four that just came out swinging impossible contenders for for anime of the year uh yeah. so everything in comparison feels mediocre however mm-hmm. i am happy to report that there is at least one candidate i think that could uh run for anime of the year contender and mm-hmm. that anime is called sunny boy so oh okay yeah um sunny boy is basically okay the premise is 36 students find themselves in their school building drifting in a void-like dimension suddenly. While this is happening, they develop supernatural powers uh, and uh, this growing sense of detachment the longer time they kind of spend within this space itself. Uh, the okay. student council, you know, is trying to impose order as they are, they are want to do, right? Um, but end up clashing with other students who now have special abilities and who rebel against their strict control. Uh, This conflict leads them to discover that this entire space that the school currently inhabits has its own set of rules and you need to follow them in order to stay alive. Um, The, yeah, so, and every time you kind of like discover and or break a rule, the rules change. Uh, So it's a whole kind of series of puzzles as they kind of figure it out. Uh, I would best describe this as a, oh man, I think of it as a Japanese anime shonen take on Lord of the Flies. Ah, okay. But it is at the same time, perhaps the most abstract, uh, minimalist, surrealist, psychological character drama that I've seen this year. Interesting. Okay. Uh, and it is it, it is quite a mindfuck. It is slow. There is a lot of emptiness, and that just plays in with the entire kind of like um, look and feel of what is about. Like a lot of the animation is of the school building, just set against this kind of black expanse where you don't know what's kind of out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you what what results as part of that is this amazing minimalist aesthetic, but the presentation is anything but minimalist. What, what do you mean by minimalist? Uh, you know, it, it's very sparse, right? There's a lot of empty space. In fact, there's a lot of use of very interesting use of negative space on multiple levels. Whether it's um, missing spaces in in um, in individuals itself, right? How the characters oh. interact with the actual void itself, uh, gotcha, gotcha. how the actual spaces within the school interact with the void itself. So, on a visual level, that that in and of itself is very compelling and very, very curious and surprising at the same time. Then at the same time, dialogue is sparse, uh, fairly. There's a lot of space between, you know, kind of like characters' thoughts and all that, giving the ideas that they are airing or the conflicts that are are taking place verbally a lot of room to breathe. Uh, Mm -hmm. And then there's the extremely kind of minimal uh, musical score as well that just adds to this overall feeling of like emptiness and detachment that feeds mm. into where this is all going um, yeah and it is very curious um, it, it feels strange it, it is it is slow and it is glacial to a point where by uh, I personally think myself as a viewer is that there's a lot of space for you to kind of project uh, what mm. your own thoughts about what they should do are like, what they are thinking are like, and all of that, and that creates a very kind of unique space that isn't really explored in anime so far. Okay. Uh, and yeah, so like, there's a whole ton of things kind of going on at this time. Uh, I will say that this is not for everyone. Uh, but then again, you know, Odd Taxi isn't for everyone either. 
definitely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I'm I'm gonna highly recommend Sony Boy if you're a big big fan of um just art house like anime style stuff. Uh, yeah. this ranks up there with the big four that we were talking about last season. In my nice. personal opinion, it has been very divisive. I don't think I've seen a middle of the line score. Uh, as far as reviews go for this anime, it's either yeah. a nine or ten or one. Um, right now, so uh, I'm on I'm on the uh, on the higher side of things. I've really really enjoyed this so far. Uh, mm-hmm. None of the mystery has kind of been dispelled or, or uh, any conclusion with that as of yet. Um, yeah, but but like the haters really hate it, and the fans are like absolutely jubilant over the fact that this exists. And I am one of those few. Nice. Okay. So yeah, I'll definitely check this out as well to to form my own opinions. Uh, but I I tend to lean more towards your your aesthetic taste as well. So yeah, I'm probably gonna like it as well. Yeah. yeah. Uh. So yeah, Sony Boy, please check that out. Um. So that's yeah. definitely I think in contention for for anime of the year. Uh, if not within the you know I probably top ten. You know at least at very least. Uh. The rest of them are mm-hmm. uh, are strong recommendations just because uh. I really enjoyed them, uh, of which a few of them are. But the next one we're going to talk about is the case study of Vanitas. Um, okay. So, for those of you that heard us talk about Mars Red and kind of ran a rave about that, we have yet another period piece uh, about vampires. Yes, but this nice. time this time it's a bit more magical, a bit less military. Uh, in in in. Uh. So we follow um the titular character Vanitas, um who is scorn by his fellow vampires for being born under a blue moon. Um, and in his isolation, uh, growing up, he he becomes, you know, kind of withdrawn and, and afraid. Um, but um, being born under a blue moon has um, has blessed him with a cursed grimoire called the Book of Veritas. And he, one day, he's going to use it to kind of save his kind. So this is set in 19th century Paris. Okay. Uh, so the setting and the background art and the costuming is just like solid. It's like on point. It's very, Gee. very good. Um, yeah. Uh, and yeah, that's essentially the story. Like it's a bit pedestrian as far as it goes. But the setting itself, uh, the artwork um, uh, done by Bones um, is, is like spectacular. And it has a very, very solid like period uh, uh, inspired um, soundtrack that I'm absolutely digging. Uh, the fight scenes are inventive and flashy and quick much in the same way Master is it but with a completely different kind of look for that uh, mm. and you know here, um, basically that is the adventures of Veritas, uh, Vanitas as he's trying to um, save the ungrateful unwilling uncooperative um, secret vampire clan that exists in Paris at this time why was being born under a blue moon make you uh, an outcast yeah so uh, you don't. They don't actually explain that until like in the middle of the anime. Oh, okay. Is it like a racial thing? I I don't know. I like, I have no idea. Uh, okay. Apparently, it has to do with a prophecy that was kind of like foretold. I uh, see. Okay. Yeah, okay, which okay. leads to him like having like receiving extra powers on top of him being. Uh, mm. Yeah. So with the grimoire and all of that, it gives him extra powers that allows it's him to. A jealousy thing, maybe. May oh well, there's a bit of that. There's a few characters where he has this very kind of like strained relationship with because of that. Uh, some people just straight up hate him because he's born under a blue moon, and it's not like it's not like there's no necessarily outward manifestation of the fact that he was born under a blue moon. 
okay. yeah, it's not very well explained. Um, but okay. man, it's a very very good looking anime, and I'm I'm here for it. Nice. Okay. Yeah. So that's uh case study of Vanitas. Uh, I'm also going to talk about maybe you know this this is my guilty pleasure anime for this season for sure, okay. and it's called How a Realist Hero Rebuilt the Kingdom. So I've been I I talked to, to Hits about this and, and Chris about this some time back when I first discovered it. Yeah. Uh, this is your run of the mill isekai starting out story, right? Um, Kazuya Soma is an aspiring civil servant who's left all alone when his grandfather dies. One fine day, he gets summoned to a whole different world. Uh, and um, to to a very small country in in on a continent that is basically battling the invasion of demons uh, from there as a as a hero. So he's got no, you know, he's not like he doesn't have a magic sword or everything like that. But he is armed with a lot of knowledge about how to you know um deal with civil matters. Mm. Uh, these are this this and. Um, he uses that to solve problems and, and get the entire country's finances. And I, there's talk about like supply chains and agriculture. And if you guys have been listening, you know that we are fans of like, anime that yeah. deal with like all this like nation building and, and the politics and, and all of that. Uh, yeah. it, is n- it is definitely not uh, anywhere near the finesse of Spice and Wolf, for example, uh, mm-hmm. or even the grand scale of, of, uh, of uh, Demon King and Hero. Uh, mm-hmm. But there's just enough here for to keep me kind of like addicted. Like throw in the fact that he, as this kind of like millennial uh, isekai hero, is fully aware of like his status, right? As a realist as well. Uh, mm-hmm. As an isekai hero, you know, so there's a lot of like references to like Yu-Gi-Oh! And to like other sort of like isekai stories that are vastly popular in Japan as well. Uh, so it makes for a very, very fun romp in which you learn a bit about, you know, agriculture, about politics, about, you know, the nature of war and how all of that kind of plays out. Uh, yeah. About supply chains and, and like, sea trade. Um, just, like, tidbits here and there that are factually sound, very, very okay. honestly. And, you know, very, very informative and educational. Um, and it works out in surprising ways, despite the fact that this the actual premise itself isn't uh, new. Uh, it's definitely mm. been done before. Uh, but yeah, it, it's feel good enough for me to want to keep watching and, and learn while I'm at it. Nice. Okay. Yeah, so... You know, like if, if you're a fan of like Dune or The Wire, you kind of realize that what it takes to run a nation or a world or a universe oh, yeah. is not like great noble men. Or you need an administrator. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like yeah. a good detail-oriented administrator and this sounds like right up my alley. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, like, it's it's silly and it's fun. Uh, again, like, it doesn't give a deep dive but, like, hell, you know. Uh, as far as, like, the Isek guys we've gotten over the last couple of years, like, this is the first one in a long time that hits hits the right spot for me as far as that mm. kind of, like, nerdy uh, <laughs> administrative side of things as strange as it is to say. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it scratches that itch for sure. Uh, awesome. Next up, I'm going to talk about uh, Remake Our Life, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so we follow 28-year-old Kyoya Hashiba, who is, um, he, he, he's basically an engineer by training who left his office job to pursue a career in the video game industry. Uh, and um, his internship doesn't go well, it leaves him unemployed, forcing him to move back with his parents. Um, okay. And he has this kind of like additional... Um, love-hate relationship, uh, or rather this this strange relationship with what is dubbed as the Platinum Generation, uh, who are 
uh, members of his peer, of his year, of his batch, uh, who are artists who have risen to kind of the top of their uh, top of their game, of their craft. Um, and it causes him deep regret uh, for his mm-hmm. decision to attend a traditional university instead of the arts college that he had always uh, wanted to go to. Um, ah, okay. So, you know, regretting all of that, he believes there's no second chance in life. And one fine day, as all of these time travel things go, he wakes up and finds himself 10 years into the past. Um, mm. And he, he's given the option, so instead of choosing business school like he originally had, he decides to, for once, pursue his passions and attends uh, the University of Art. And there, he meets his classmates, who will eventually become the Platinum Generation. Ah. Um, one of which is uh, his future boss in the video game company who hires him as an intern. Um, oh, so okay. yeah, there's actually yeah, it's 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 a fairly complicated, um, semi romance drama about second chances and a very interesting look into what art school is like and what the mm. art industry eventually becomes for people uh, for people who who pursue that in Japan. Uh, so there is a fair bit of like information there that I've never kind of been exposed to, um, not at this level at least. Um, the characters are memorable, they're quirky. Um, they are endearing almost immediately, um, and yeah, it's about a, a a man getting a second chance to rediscover what he's always wanted to do and discovering himself in the process of that. Right. Okay. Yeah. So that is remake our life. Um, solid stuff. Uh, I'm quite enjoying it just for the feel good factor and the fact that, um, despite it being generally slice of life, the time travel aspect of it isn't just like shown aside or swept under the carpet, there are consequences to the fact that he is traveling back in time. In addition Mm. to the fact that he already had a very complex relationship with his artistic peers or the creators of his generation with the Platinum generation, how Mm -hmm. that translates as a man who has gone 10 years back into his past with all the knowledge that he has accumulated and the feelings that he has developed from that and how that plays out in his current relationships is very well written and fairly fascinating to explore. Nice. Okay. Yeah. Uh, finally, I'm going to talk about um, the Aquatope on White Sand. Okay. Uh, which is my pick for the most kind of like off uh, uh, left feel. No, left feel is not really. This is basically my feel good pick for for this season, right? Um, mm-hmm. We follow uh, we follow a rejected idol who finds herself on a plane to Okinawa instead of returning home to avoid the huge pity party waiting for her back at her village. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so he, she aimlessly wanders around in Okinawa until she stumbles upon uh, the Gama Gama Aquarium, which is an uh, uh, aging uh, tourist spot um, that's on the verge of going down. Um, there's no visitors there, you know, um, and it's, it's really, really run down. Uh, but somehow, while she spends time wandering these empty halls with all the fishes and, you know, these very, very beautifully animated scenes of, like, it feels a lot of, like, that Romeo and Juliet moment um, where they're standing across from each other. Uh, oh, okay, in, in okay. Aquarium. Yeah, like, there's a lot of that, which I'm, which I'm here for. Um, uh, you know, she, she feels like there, there's something special about this place that, that calls out to her. And so she eventually teams up with um the director of this aquarium's uh granddaughter who is a high school student 
uh, who is yeah. absolutely obsessed with fish and sea okay. life, right? So much so that she submits things like, you know, how to care for squid, uh, like notes for one of her math um, assignments. Uh, okay. You know, and the two of them uh, come together to find a way to keep the aquarium going and the magic that she has discovered there of it and the struggles there. In um, It is a very calm and well-paced and very soothing anime about learning to heal from um, the rejection of uh, one of your biggest dreams in life, right? And how the dedication of yourself to perhaps a purpose other than, than what you were looking for may be exactly what you need in a time when you should be, you've, you're tempted to look inward. Um, mm. You know, so it really does lean into that very, very heavily. And I know that's not for everyone. That's not what you want the anime to be. I was surprised by how taken I was by this. This is not going to be for everybody. I'm going to say, though, that you should give it one episode. Don't need rule of three. Just give it one episode, and I think you'll immediately be able to tell whether or not you'll be into it. Okay. Yeah, so that's uh, the Akutope on White Sand. Nice. Okay. Uh, honorable mentions really quickly before I hand it back to Hits for the second part of Quick Hits. I'm yep. going to talk about uh, Sukimichi, which is uh, Sukimichi Moonlight Fantasy, which is another isekai uh, with a slight twist on the premise. So our protagonist is <laughs> our protagonist is essentially um, he is the offspring of two isekai protagonists who came to our Earth. Oh, okay, okay. Right, so he's the son. And um, they, the, his parents made a promise with the goddess that brought them to our earth, which is the moon goddess, uh, um, Sugimichi, mm-hmm. that they would give up eventually over time what was most important to them. And lo and behold, that was him, the son. So he gets sent back to the original world that they came from, having okay. absolutely no idea uh, of what he is like or what he's supposed to do. Uh, and he has to report to the other goddess who's in charge of the original world that they were from, uh, who actually doesn't give a shit about him uh, and decides to just chuck him onto the world with like the smallest of possible blessings that she has, which is the ability to comprehend all languages, which is OP as fuck, uh, despite the fact that she's dismissive about it. And um, yep. yeah, basically that's where his, <laughs> that's where his, uh, his adventure kind of begins. Uh, what's interesting about this is that there's a very heavy anthropological um, slant to this. So he ends up being cast uh, because the this this malevolent goddess thinks he's too ugly or too plain looking to be a hero. So he gets mm-hmm. cast onto the world where the monsters are. So he starts okay. his entire adventure by learning the culture and language and traditions of the orcs. Mm. and then it keeps kind of like going to like uh, all the different kind of monsters and kind of learning about that fascinating kind of look at um, a very different kind of point of view as far as like fantasy isekai goes in addition to that there's a very uh, not convoluted but there's a very complex system of magic that he needs to learn uh, that is fairly well thought out uh, very very honestly like from a like a game designer point of view like that would be a fascinating kind of magic system to look into uh, but mm. yeah, he has to kind of like uncover that piece by piece because no one person that he has spoken to like, has like all the answers about that. So while he's learning about like the culture and the people or the various denizens within like this 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 crapshoot of of uh, of of the land uh, in this mm-hmm. fantasy world, uh, you know, he's he's trying to piece together a way to send himself back home, 
through a very it's 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 like archaeological and anthropological uh, anthropological as well, and it's very very well written for that. Uh, it's not amazing in terms of like the fight sequences or the character building necessarily, uh, but mm. just like its approach is, um, well, the interesting twist to the isekai premise and its approach to, um, the story itself and the world building is something that really caught my attention, and I'll be mm-hmm. continuing to watch this just because it's something really different. That's awesome. Okay. Yeah. Uh, next up, I'm going to talk about Life Lessons with Uram, uh, Uramichi Onisan, which is basically uh, for fans of anyone who has watched Zetsubo Sensei. Um, and it is about a, uh, a former gymnast who has been hired to run like public access TV, low budget children's shows. Okay. Uh, and his struggle to kind of keep it together. Uh, together with this crew of miserable adults who have absolutely no like desire to live anymore or be a part of this like crap, crap TV show. Um, oh, okay. There's a lot of like dry wit and all of that. Um, you know, coupled with the fact that there are other former gymnasts who act as mascots who are absolutely terrified of uh, Ura Michi, uh, who is their senpai, a gymnastic yep. senpai, and the fact that these kids are precocious and sarcastic and like absolutely have no filter and are just you know giving him shit all the time off off screen uh, off camera rather and okay. you know it makes for uh, in incredibly funny comedy uh just about you know being in a place that you don't want to be in um yeah yeah uh, my only complaint for life lessons with uh uramichi onisan is that uh it's not the animation isn't great like, it's just slightly better than what we got with Way of the House Husband, right? It's not PowerPoint exactly, but it's barely animated, if I could put it that way. Um, oh, yeah, but okay. like, it's animated enough uh, for the, the visual gags to have like fantastic comedic timing. Uh, mm-hmm. That and the fact that they have, there are a lot of very good uh, Japanese voice actors on this and their delivery is just like spot on. Even if you don't understand Japanese, even if you're just reading the subtitles, which are very well done, I have to say, uh, it translates very well. Still, um, it's good for a laugh, right? And, you know, uh, again, if you if you really enjoy uh, Zetsubo Sensei, then, you know, this is right up your alley. Nice. Uh, last one for the bit is uh, The Great Jahi Will Not Be Defeated. Basically, for anybody who has watched um, The Devil is a Part-Timer and Love the Devil is a Part-Timer, this is for you. Um, yeah. Same premise. Uh, you know, um, the second in command of the Demon Realm uh, the Demon King's aide, Jahi, um, gets transported to modern day world and he has to kind of figure out what the hell is going on. Uh, you mm. know, and so she works part-time to pay for her living expenses uh, and so on and so forth. It's been really funny. Uh, it's just, you know, like a bit of a gender swap from from um, the Demon Lord as part-timer. Uh, oh. And yeah, it's funny. It's I mean, it has it has a fair bit of fan service, fair warning for any of you that don't uh, like that. But yeah, it's it's... We haven't gotten a conclusion to uh, The Devil is a Part-Timer. So, mm-hmm. like, Jahi, like, feels a nice kind of sweet spot for anybody wanting more of that story. Okay, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's it. that's it for me for Anime Corner. I uh, hope you guys... Uh, there's something that I've talked about that appeals to you. Please go ahead and check that out on, you know, uh, Crunchyroll or wherever else um, you decide to watch your anime. Uh, nothing mm-hmm. here in particular that will that is on Netflix at the moment. However, mm-hmm. I have a feeling that Sunny Boy and Case Study of Anitas 
at very least will be on Netflix at some point in time, given the way that they they um, choose to you know schedule their their catalog. So if you want to hold off, you can go ahead and do that. Uh, we are about nine episodes into the standard season so far, so. You know, mm-hmm. you can start watching now and, you know, you won't be too far behind. Or if you want to binge it, then just give it another month or so. Nice. You know, I'm, I'm definitely going to gonna start uh, jumping into Sunny Boy uh, sooner rather than later. Yeah. Um, I, if I'm not mistaken, Funimation bought Crunchyroll, right? Yes. Uh, is it Funimation? Oh, is it the other way around? Did Crunchyroll buy Funimation? I know, I know they merged. Yeah, they are. Uh, was it because... Okay, no. There were like multiple acquisitions. I think Sony owns all of them at the moment. Sony owns Funimation, which bought Crunchyroll. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I just looked it up. Yeah, yeah. yeah Sony owns So, um, wow, what a what a library they got right there, man. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I'm going to cap it off with the second part of Quick Hits. Yep. Uh, I'm going to begin with M. Night Shyamalan's new film, Old, uh, which features another wild concept. Um, it follows a family on a tropical holiday uh, that turns into a horrific nightmare when they become trapped on a secluded beach that somehow causes them to age rapidly. Um, reducing their entire lives into a single day. Um, it's kind of a go-for-broke Twilight Zone kind of riff yep. uh, about a beach where time passes so fast that a six-year-old in the morning will go through puberty by lunch and a grandmother in the first act has almost no chance of being around in the third. Um, it's the sort of unsettling idea that can kind of trigger a wave of existential anxieties. Yet, in Shyamalan's hands, it all ends up being very silly. Um, Shyamalan opts for a hurried, yet impressively perverse series of cheap thrills um, that emphasize the body horror of aging over the more profound terror of feeling the years pass by. Um, The result is a silly, yet well-acted, piece of schlock that's (laughs) intense and chaotic uh, but at the same time also clumsy and about as subtle as a hammer Um, it kind of makes me long for more psychological suspense uh, that we got from Shyamalan's earlier work Mm -hmm. Um, as always the guy takes huge swings with a unique concept the execution is uneven to say the least I would have given this uh, as a 6 out of 10 if not for the twist at the end which is fairly horrible so I'm giving Uh... this a a 5 out of 10 uh, next uh, yeah, yeah, I know, right? You yeah, know, um, yeah. Shamala has his hits and misses, more misses than hits these days. Yeah. Um, speaking of, you know, the, you notice like I, I did not, I do not like these last few titles, which is why I've like put it at the back. Yeah. Um, and next up, I'm going to be talking about Disney's latest blockbuster, <laughs> the, the Jungle Cruise. Um, it's inspired by Disneyland's famous theme park ride, of course. You know, um, Jungle Cruise is an Amazon adventure starring Dwayne the Rock Johnson as a wisecracking boat captain, Frank Wolf, and Emily Blunt as an intrepid researcher named Dr. Lily Houghton. Um, Lily has traveled from London to the Amazon jungle and enlisted Frank's services in order to uncover an ancient tree with unparalleled healing abilities. Mm-hmm. Um, it supposedly possesses the power to change the future of medicine. So um, they are thrust on this epic quest together. The, the duo encounter innumerable dangers and supernatural forces, all lurking in the Amazon rainforest. Um, sadly, Jungle Cruise is the kind of thrill ride that feels like it was created by some sort of blockbuster generator algorithm. Yeah, you know, um, it is an untaxing summer popcorn movie for the whole family that won't engage you mentally or emotionally. Um, it is harmless, I guess, mm-hmm. but it's also very derivative. It's four out of ten for me. Um, finally, I'm going to be talking about Reminiscence, which is a new sci-fi movie from Westworld co-creator Lisa Joy. 
Um, it stars Hugh Jackman. Oh. As Nick Bannister, mm. um, a private investigator of the mind um, who helps his clients access lost memories. Um, however, his life is upended when he takes on a new client named me, played by Rebecca Ferguson. Um, a simple matter of lost and found memories becomes more dangerous when he uncovers a violent conspiracy within her mind. Um, all in all, the movie is aiming for a classical film noir detective story with some pretty unoriginal sci-fi concepts that you've seen a million times before mm-hmm. in, you know, Eternal Sunshine or Inception and stuff like that. Um, despite some really, really good acting performances, uh, Hugh Jackman and Rebecca Ferguson are excellent. Um, it has a cool setting because it's set in the near future of the sunken coast of future Miami. Mm-hmm. Um, it has some decent ex- action set pieces. Uh, the movie is ultimately um, boring, is the word. Uh, it's really boring and hollow. Uh, so yeah, this is a 3 out of 10 for me. Uh, give it a miss. And yeah, that wraps it up for quick hits. That was oh, a really good one. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so I'm going to jump into uh, The Witcher Nightmare of the Wolf, which is now on Netflix. It came out last week. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so um, big fan of The Witcher. Big fan of the, yeah. the games in particular. And I actually really enjoyed the, the series. Um, season 2 is coming soon. Season 2 is coming soon. Uh, and apparently we're going to be following someone different. So, mm-hmm. we shall see how that turns out. But essentially, Nightmare of the Wolf uh, is a sequel. Uh, and we follow Gerald's mentor and fellow witcher, Vesemir. Um, it starts out with him kind of saving a noble child. Uh, learning that he's a bit of a huge asshole. Uh, very much. And apparently, so are a lot of witches of uh, his time. Okay. Um, I'm not going to go too much into the entire thing uh, in terms of his story and all of that. Uh, safe to say that I really, really enjoyed this. First and foremost, because I think from something from the Witcher franchise, uh, Nightmare of the Wolf being a one and a half hour long movie, animated movie, is um, it's, it's, it's straight line. There's no mental gymnastics that need to navigate like multiple timelines necessarily. There's a fair bit of flashbacks, which I think is okay. Uh, but mm-hmm. nothing compared to like the jumping here and there that we got with the Rich- Witcher series proper on Netflix. Yeah. Um, um, Helmed, uh, the main production studio is Studio Mo, uh, which gave us, of course, um, Dota's Dragon's Blood, which we reviewed very well before, and Keeper with the Age of Wonder Beach, which we've also reviewed before. Um, you know, and then uh, through the form, again, like it has the same kind of like look and feel. Um, the fight scenes are snappy and smart. Um, the musical score is pretty phenomenal um, and very, very much in line with, you know, whatever we've gotten from the Witcher series itself. Um, the character work is is uh, complex, more so than I thought it would be given its runtime. Uh, and the voice work is is great. Um, like, it is on par, in my opinion, with uh, what we got from Dota of um, Dragon's Blood. Uh, yep. from what we got from Castlevania even uh, wow. you know uh, I think as a one-off kind of like OVA I guess you could call this um, mm-hmm. within the Witcher universe that Netflix has set up it's a solid solid entry uh, I'm going to give this a 7.5 out of 10 because I really Ooh, nice. enjoyed it like there was no point in time that I felt like distracted the pace doesn't ever kind of let up um, I have to say that again the monster designs are fantastic and the goal is okay. I think right that the goal here might be the best out of the three kind of big um, Netflix uh, adaptations that we've had so far. 
Like, Dragon's Blood was pretty gory. Castlevania was pretty gory, but, like, there's quite a fair bit of body horror here. Uh, it just takes it up a slight notch from the other two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I completely enjoyed it. Um, despite the fact that, very honestly, anybody who is not paying attention, if you were to watch any episode of Castlevania or uh, Dragon's Blood or Nightmare of the Wolf back to back, they would probably think it's the same anime. Um, but uh, if you give it out and and um, give it a bit of time and attention, right? Like you, they do feel like very distinct franchises. That being said, I do feel that Netflix animation is starting to trend towards a certain look. Mm, I agree. Yeah, and I'm worried. I think yeah. three at this point in time is okay. Mm. Uh, but we are also getting a League of Legends adaptation. That's right. Yeah. Which, from what I understand, is also by Studio Mer. Mm. Um, and it's not like they can't do anything else, right? Because like they did keep on Age of Wonder Beasts, which is like a totally different art style, uh, yep. and so on and so forth. But I'm 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 a bit worried. Um, that you know they need to shake things up a bit. Like we are at a point in time where these kind of like Netflix ad- uh, Netflix animation stuff is giving us really solid stories, really awesome soundtracks, great great character work, great animation and all of that. But um, it's it's going to take a while before they reach like the heights of anime necessarily in just in terms of like the variety and, and the, the specific looks that we get and the aesthetics that we get from, from anime to anime. Um, yeah. Yeah, so that's kind of my only concern. Outside of that, like, you know, again, 7.5 for me, Nightmare of the Wolf. Uh, did you catch it, Hits? No, I've not caught it yet. Okay, cool. Yeah, so um, I highly recommend it. Uh, it does fit very well into uh, what they've already given us with the Witcher series. Um, I think it's a nice kind of like gap filler between now and when season two starts. Gives you a bit more of uh, a look at the, the world build and the history behind, you know, where Geralt's story takes place. And perhaps mm-hmm. a bit of a better understanding of the social implications of uh, what witches are and how they are situated within their world. Vesemir uh, mm. is a compelling character. Um, it, it's, uh, but again, you know, he's kind of like this roguish, likable, a bit like you know, um, what's his face in in Castlevania, a bit like the guy in Dragon Knight as well. Um, yeah, yeah. So like, if you enjoy all of that, I will, and you enjoy Witcher, I I highly recommend uh, watching The Witcher: Nightmare of the Wolf. Awesome, you know, as as a big fandom out there, I'm sure it's getting good numbers for Netflix, and I'm sure the Witcherverse is something that they're investing heavily in. Oh yeah. Uh, and we will of course be covering Witcher season two once it comes around in November, Decemberish. Uh, yeah. Yeah, we'll we'll be talking about that then. We will be back uh in a few weeks time, you know, as always. Behold us out there. The next couple of episodes are going to be covering very, very different things. Mm-hmm. Um, in a couple of weeks' time, we'll be back because I want to talk about Amazon Prime specifically as a streaming service. Uh, on this show, on this genre equality show, we've talked a lot about the expense. Yeah, we've talked a lot about the boys. Uh, we've <laughs> even covered a fleabag uh, mm-hmm. in an episode of Behold. Yep. But I would like to showcase that there are other things on Amazon Prime that are very good as well. Yeah. Uh, so we'll be talking about The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Catastrophe and One Mississippi. Uh, some of the smaller, well, maybe not Maisel, but the other two are definitely smaller shows that probably don't get the love that they deserve on uh-huh. Amazon Prime. Uh, subsequently, uh, a couple of weeks from then, we'll be talking about uh, one of the most classic genres of all, um, 
film noir. Mm. And I'm limiting this classic <laughs> film noir. Um, and and the, the timeline for this is film noir is released between the 30s and the 50s. Yeah. Uh, so this is all just real OG film noirs, the classic ones, The yeah. Third Man, The Maltese Falcon, Touch of Evil, and Sunset Boulevard are my favorite from the first wave, the first generation yep. of film noir. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a genre that has been copied, tried and true. It's a genre that's still around today. Yeah. You know? Um, that is still being copied and it's still a, a beloved genre. Like, I mean, it's it's gone into sci-fi, Blade Runner, and and many other things. In fact, the, the title I just talked about, Reminiscence, was basically a film noir. Like. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll be talking about that then. And then one month from now, Journey Call T46 is back. Oh, yeah. Um, Marvel is back on the big screen with Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Mm-hmm. Um, we finally are getting what we've been promised in Iron Man 3. The Mandarin <laughs> is here uh, and I'm psyched for it and he's played by uh, Wong Kar Wai favourite Tony Leung. Oh yeah. Uh, very interesting. Um, the lead is uh, Sneak Attack, uh, Kim's Convenience star, Simi Liu, Alcofina is in it. Uh, it looks to be a very much more um, competent take on the martial arts genre than Iron Fist ever was. Uh-huh. So uh, we're excited to watch that uh, next month. Plus, uh, My Hero Academia has ended, well, or will be ending in three or four episodes this current season. And we'll yep. talk about that. Uh, I do have to say I'm super enjoying the My Villain Academia. Um, <laughs> yeah. it's, been, it's been very cool. Plus, Star Wars Visions is probably the most excited I've been for Star Wars this year. I mean, there hasn't been anything else. Like, you know, Mandalorian ended last oh, year. Oh, well, bad, uh, bad, bad. Um true yeah. but i mean visions just seems like so fucking oh, cool i mean right? it's star wars and anime like you got me <laughs> right there yeah yeah it has this like animatrix vibe yeah. um plus on quick hits i'll be covering midnight mass which is the new show by the creator of the haunting of hill house slash bly manor mm-hmm. uh so kind of it's probably going to be good you know um netflix seems to give him these titles close to Halloween, so why not? Yeah. Uh, we'll be talking about the new Candyman, which is a sequel from the 1980s, uh, sorry, the early 1990s cult classic. Uh, the new, uh, the final episode of Adventure Time, Distant Lands. Uh, the pull list is something that I got myself accidentally pulled into. <laughs> I wanted to read the Foundation universe, and yeah. I read the Foundation trilogy very easily. It's, it's one of the best, uh, like, I mean, it sounds fucking cliche, like exactly. It's more of his genius, yeah. Of course, we know that, yeah. Yeah. But the foundation universe, particularly, is one of his like peak works. Uh-huh. So I wanted to get into it. I read it. I thought, you know, I I immediately came to the conclusion that Dune was super inspired by this. I yep. wrote an article about it. Yeah. And then I started reading, you know, the the later editions of the foundation uh-huh. universe, that are also by Isaac Asimov, of course, that he wrote before he died. And then in his final book, Foundation and Earth, I started to. I was like. <laughs> excited slash excited slash like upset mm-hmm. uh, because like he there suddenly characters from his robot universe were in there okay, um, yep. plot points from his empire universe was in there and I was like motherfucker I, was, I only wanted to read seven books okay yep. <laughs> and then like the final book of foundation drew me into reading one two three eighteen books and fifty three short stories mm-hmm. because they were all in the same universe mm-hmm. And and while I have enjoyed it thoroughly, yep. I do have to say that this was more of a time commitment than I, I planned for. Yeah. And and I was like, you know what? I've I've spent three, four weeks reading fucking 18 books, and I'm gonna talk about this. So I'm gonna talk about that. Oh yeah. Uh in, in the next episode of uh, genre equality. Yeah, do it, do it. I, I think people people always talk, okay, you know what? If you're gonna read all of Lord of Rings, it's gonna be a time sink. You're gonna read all of Dune, it's gonna be a time sink. No one really thinks about reading 
all of Isaac Asimov. And I don't know how you pulled that off in three to four weeks because that is a lot, my friend. It is a lot. Um, mm. But well done. I'm looking forward to this discussion, actually. Yeah, um, I, I did not know that his three, his three major stories, uh, his three major series uh, all took place in the same universe. Um, and I was very excited slash upset to find that out. <laughs> like, when I read that, I was like, oh, fuck, you know, I got, I got so much more to read, you know. And then because after the sequels, the foundation, there are the prequels, and the prequels are very tied into the robot, the robot yeah. stories. And yeah. I was like, I then I I got to go back to like iRobot. Like I got I got to go back there, and then I got to read all the short stories. I got to read everything else. Yeah. You know, if not, I'm not I'm not gonna get the scope of this. So I was like, okay, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about it soon. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, that's been it for this episode of Genre Equality. Uh, this has been Hit Zero. I'm Isa. Goodbye, guys. Yeah.